This is absurd. My dear young man, don't take it too hard. Your work is ingenious. It's quality work. And there are simply too many notes. That's all. Just cut a few and it'll be perfect. Which few did you have in mind, Majesty? From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, singing the arias while I handle the dry recitative, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Does that make me a diva? That and many, many other things (laughs) make you a diva, yes. On today's episode, to honor the passing of director Milos Forman, Nakia and I are sitting down for her first viewing of Forman's 1984 Best Picture winner, Amadeus. But first, Nakia, you had an idea for a discussion topic we could have this week. Yeah, I mean, just to put off the movie for as long as possible, I thought we could have. (laughs) (laughs) At least you're open about your motives. A conversation. Um, So on Twitter, I saw that uh, Filmstruck, which is at Filmstruck, posted this sort of prompt last week asking people to pick uh, the four films that sort of define them. Yes, this is hashtag Filmstruck 4 and... Everybody on Twitter was apparently doing it. And was loving the opportunity to sort of show show off their sophisticated tastes. Yes. See, I follow a lot of film critics and stuff. And it's just like, they were just picking the most pretentious four films they could think of, most of them. You're not even on Twitter. I am not. (laughs) I am not on Twitter. I I pay attention to what's happening on Twitter, but I'm not actually on Twitter. No. I am on Twitter, mm-hmm. or, which we say is we are on Twitter. Right, it's you are Free on Range Twitter. Critic. Yeah. That's the brand. Yeah. But really, yes, you don't. No, I don't participate in that nonsense. <laughs> no. How wise you are. From what I hear, it's all Nazis and Beyonce stands. So. <laughs> okay, so you thought we could do yeah, our, I mean, our given film struck four here. The sort of nature of this project, I thought it could be interesting, at least maybe for you, to have a discussion about the sort of four films that. Define well, and it's also like does define you mean you know are these the four films you would give someone and say watch these four films and you will totally understand right. who I am. Well, this is the other thing, and I haven't done this on Twitter because it did not immediately strike me as something that like I, I didn't look at that and be like oh I know what that means right yeah and then I looked at how everyone was doing it and it seemed like everybody was do- answering it in a different mm-hmm. way. Some people were just doing like these are four films I love these are my four favorite films. Some people were doing like these are four films that influenced who I am yeah. as a person because of who I follow. Some people were doing these are four films that made me appreciate film. Right. Right. So it's like and then some people just like picked subgenres. Mm-hmm. They're like, here are four horror films, or here are four. I saw someone did four Kirsten Dunst films. It's like, that's okay, an interesting choice. Sure. <laughs> okay. Because that's what defined that person. So, yes, this is good that you're going to force me to do this because I don't know that I would have done it otherwise. <laughs> and I suppose it does fit this project because, in theory, that's kind of what right. the unenthusiastic critic should be about. Right. Although. We've done like 40 some odd films between the podcast and the blog at this point. I'm not sure those are the films that define me. (laughs) 
And I don't know if you think you understand me any better, having seen any of these films. Definitely after Reanimator, I understand you. <laughs> that's probably the one that comes the closest, actually. <laughs> that's a, that's trouble. Representing my my soul. That is trouble. Is Reanimator. Mm-hmm. Cat dead. Details later. <laughs> So you're you're going to tell us your for your four films. Oh, I thought you were going to go first. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that how this is going to work? I Why don't so. we? I guess we could alternate. Okay. We could go back and forth. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't I just do my four because mine are quick? Okay. Yours, I'm worried yours are going to be better than mine because mine are boring. But go ahead. Well, no. Okay. So obviously, if you... wait, wait. First, we need to. So we just said everybody approaches this differently. How did you approach right. it? Right. Um. How did I approach this? I mean, I guess if you look at these four films, I don't know that it would, I think it would tell you much more about what I like about films than it would tell you really about my personality. Like, I don't know that it would. If someone watched these four films, would they have a sense of who you are as a human being? They would have a sense of my, of a small piece of my tastes. (laughs) Okay. So you avoided the question. Okay, so, go no, ahead. I didn't, I didn't, though, because... Okay, so you'll see. Okay, so The Big Lebowski. Of course. Of course, because I just I feel like that's probably the film that's most in line with my humor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably the film that I quote the most. It's definitely the film you've it's, seen the most. It's definitely the film I've seen the most. So that had to be in there. And it's an it, it really is an odd choice. Is it? Because you you think you're the dude, and you are not anything like the dude. I am the dude, man. I am the dude. So it is sort of revelatory that you think of yourself that (laughs) way. Exactly. So maybe this says a lot about you. Yes, an opinion of how, or an idea of how I see myself. I see myself (laughs) as a scraggy white man in a robe in the grocery store, smoking pot, paying for milk into whale songs. Yes, that's that is ideally none of which is you who I want to be. Uh, then Pan's Labyrinth is another one. Okay. Most, and I think that just gives you an idea of my appreciation for sort of gothic fairy tales Mm -hmm. and highly sort of visual films. Um, so that could speak to, I I like art. I really like going to look at art and things Mm -hmm. like that. I like films that. You like dark stuff. I like dark stuff. stuff. (laughs) You like stuff where children die. (laughs) Stuff where children die. Yes, you do. There are two movies that I for a like. while in our apartment we had up the Edward Gorey alphabet well, of dead children, beautifully done, framed. and funny. So <laughs> that was like the first thing people saw when they came into our apartment, so they knew what they were getting into. Yeah. So I mean, I suppose that does speak a lot to me. So the next one, it's a trio. So I'm cheating a little bit here. That is cheating. I know what trio it is, though, just from you saying that. No, you don't. Oh, okay. So it's Purple Rain. Oh, for fuck's sake! Labyrinth. What? And Moonwalker. So these are three oh, films. It's the pop star. <laughs> Triple Bill. So it's Prince. It's Bowie. And it's Michael Jackson. Oh my god! But I like right. So and I'm not saying that these are brilliant films. Good. Labyrinth really is. Um, <laughs> Purple Rain and Moonwalker are more basically just sort of a collection of music videos loosely tied together with narratives. Very loosely. Shut up. But I think it speaks to sort of music is very important to me. Okay. Um, And those three artists in particular are very important to me. So I chose those three. I'll allow it, but it's cheating. It's not cheating. I don't think it's cheating. And then the fourth one is Eve's Bayou. um, Okay. Which I love. 
it's the sort of Southern Gothic magical realism film. And I like those sorts of themes a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm attracted to those sort in books and film. So those are my four. Okay. I think those are good choices. <laughs> Nothing super highbrow, though. No, highbrow is overrated. But I think that, you know, represents different aspects of your so. twisted personality, certainly. I'm very, I'm pretty vanilla. All right. Well, those are way more interesting than my choices. My choices are very boring. And I sort of had this, like, this is, it's just a torturous question to ask. It's hard. Someone who pretends to be a cinephile. Like, it's just, it becomes very stressful. <laughs> so I kind of had to go with, like, the first thing that came to my head. Okay. That's how I ended up doing this. And I approached it sort of aspects of my personality and almost aspirational. Okay. Part of it's who I am, but I think also part of it is just, like, who I would like to be or how I would like <laughs> to see myself. Okay. So, first is Casablanca, because basically 40% of my brain is Casablanca. Like, that's just... And I just fucking love Rick Blaine. Rick Blaine (laughs) is the man that I wanted to be growing up. The cynicism speaks to me. Okay. You know, when Peter Laurie says to him, You despise me, don't you, Rick? And he says, If I gave you any thought, I probably would. (laughs) Like, that's just the guy I want to be that can say things like that. You want to walk off into the fog with Peter Laurie. Okay. (laughs) Got it. Uh, Claude Rains, thank you. Sorry, Claude Rains. Obviously, you need to see Casablanca oh, again. Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then similarly, I had to go with All About Eve. Yes, uh, yeah, I was I expecting mean, that one. That's, again, it's just another favorite. It's You want to be Addison DeWitt. I want to be Addison DeWitt. <laughs> and I also, I, I have a love for the theater. I, you know, in high school and college, I acted. So that all appeals. So that just feels, that just feels very me mm-hmm. to me. Uh, but yes, Ad- Addison DeWitt is my spirit animal. <laughs> and we're not, you're not supposed to say spirit animal. Oh, I'm sorry. He is my uh, avatar. My, is an avatar a religious thing too? I have no idea. <laughs> I just know spirit animal is off the table. Damn. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and that, and this is such a boring choice. It's so boring, I'm now rethinking it. Do I have time to... No. Okay. To Kill a Mockingbird. That's not a boring choice. It is a boring choice. I don't think so. But, for, I mean, first of all, because Atticus Finch is just a decent right. person. Like, that's just... You look at that, and it's like, I want to be... Atticus Finch. See, I want to be Rick Blaine and Addison DeWitt, but I also want to be <laughs> Atticus. Atticus Finch. Okay. So somewhere in all of that is the person I have failed to be. <laughs> And also just the small town. I mean, I didn't grow up in the South. I grew up in New England. But just the small town, the kids running around at night, no one really paying attention to what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Like, that was my childhood. So I just, I very much relate to that. And then the final film, and this was a surprise to me, this is a recent entry. Oh. Is Paolo Sorrentino's The Great Beauty. I have not seen that. Which you have not seen yet. We, We really need to sit down and watch that movie. Okay. This was, it's 2011, I think, 2012. But... There's a character in there named Jep, played by Tony Servio. He's the main character. And I view that movie as the, this is how I want my old age to be. Okay, like pause. Jep, Jep. Okay. So the last time you made me watch and you recommended an elder movie to me or a movie about <laughs> older people, it was, what's that movie? Amor. Horribly, <laughs> horribly heartbreaking film. No, this is the opposite. This is the opposite of that. <laughs> I want to die. I want to watch my wife die slowly from. No. no. Uh, what does he have? Uh, I don't know. Something horrible. <laughs> <Just> like... <laughs> 
That's a, that's a beautiful film. It is a more, beautiful but film, no, but it, just, it is not, heartbreaking. It's <laughs> not aspirational for me. <laughs> no, Jep is a socialite. He is a party guy, mm-hmm. uh, which is not me. And I think in the film, he's turning 65 and sort of coming to grips with what his life has become and mm-hmm. coming to grips with sort of some disappointments and things that, you know, he wasn't quite the person that he wanted to turn out to be. But it's also just, it's a film that has so much humanity and so much like sympathy for human failings. Mm-hmm. He just approaches his life with humor and just appreciation of the weirdness of it. It's just a beautiful film. And it's like, I think that's the guide I want into the last third of my life. That's a beautiful answer. Yours were better than mine. No, mine were boring. No, they weren't. To Kill a Mockingbird is never a boring answer. It is. To Kill a Mockingbird is apparently falling out of favor now. Why? Um, I don't know exactly. So there's people who are taking it off the school reading list because it has the N-word in it and stuff like that, which is whatever. But then I think the left is now attacking To Kill a Mockingbird because of the white savior-ness of it, because it's a story about... It's fucking Atticus Finch. That's what I... Like, (laughs) really, does he not get a pass? I'm sure it's more complicated than that. I probably... And I'm sure there are really good arguments (laughs) for it, but... I, I feel very emotionally attached to Atticus Finch and uh, Scout. Yes. I'll let you have that one. I won't, you know, take that away from you if I find out anything. <laughs> okay. But again, this is one of those questions that on any given day... The answer could, could be different. The answer could be different. Right. You know, it could be The Lion in Winter is a film that I tried to justify somehow, just mm-hmm. because I think... And I think, really, we've talked before, that's kind of how we want our relationship to be. Which is... Where we're troubling, really. against each other That's and trying just, to kill each other. And it's really troubling. I lock you we in the tower. Probably talk to a counselor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. And if we're, like, yeah. If we're talking about sort of avatars, then I could go all over the place with that one. Like, I would really love to be Ursula from The Little Mermaid. <laughs> I would also really love to be Maleficent. Like, I tend to like the villains, particularly you, in cartoons. You just, like... Women who can fuck you I up. I really do. Well, Maleficent also has cheekbones for days. So I would love to have that. And she has a bomb-ass outfit on. And Ursula's just a bad bitch. So, I mean... I mean you sort of want to be Uma Thurman and kill Bill, I sort of want to be Uma Thurman and kill Bill. I really do just want to be a deadly yeah. fucking woman. Mm-hmm. This is what this country has done to me. Is I Which, basically want to be... Oh, what was that movie? It was like the vagina with teeth. That's basically <laughs> It was I, called Teeth. <laughs> was it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I basically want to be like a walking vagina with teeth. Like that's okay, that's okay, what I want. These are all things that should and do <laughs> concern me deeply. All right. Any final thoughts on that before we actually go to the film we're going to discuss? No, I just want to watch all my movies over again. I haven't seen Moonwalker in a really long time, actually. Yeah, me either. Have you ever seen? You've never seen it, have you? I've seen parts of it. No, you haven't. You have not seen it. We need to watch it. I haven't. It was on. My cousin had it on VHS. That's how I saw it. That's how long ago it was since I've seen it. Mm-hmm. So we, we'll need to find Moonwalker and watch it. You are welcome to pick that the next time it's your turn <laughs> to pick a movie for this process. Okay, now we can get to this dumbass movie you want to talk about. <laughs> on the page, it looked nothing. The beginning simple, almost comic. Just a pulse, bassoons, basset horns, like a rusty squeeze box. (laughs) And then, suddenly, high above it, an oboe. 
A single note hanging there, unwavering. Until a clarinet took it over. Sweetened it into a phrase of such delight. This was no composition by a performing monkey. This was a music I'd never heard. Filled with such longing, such unfulfillable longing. It seemed to me that I was hearing a voice of God. Okay, Nakia, what do you actually know about Amadeus? I think I know the basic idea. Okay. Uh, Salieri is a composer who is jealous of the gifts of Amadeus Mozart. Um, and I believe Mozart is supposed to be sort of a jackass wonderkin. Um, just sort of entitled and unserious about his gift. Okay. Um, that's all I know. Okay, and where do you know that from? <laughs> General uh, osmosis from pop culture. You're being very vague. <laughs> because you don't want to admit, and this is one of the reasons we do this project, how much of your knowledge of stuff comes from cartoons. I, it really does. It really does. You know, Bugs Bunny had a lot of good stuff in it. The <laughs> Simpsons has a lot of great stuff in it. I know the Simpsons did Amadeus at yes. one point. And unfortunately, Family Guy also did a, an Amadeus skit, which is uh, where I'm getting the like Mozart's supposed to be a dick thing from. Probably. So, yeah. Right. It's a scene where he's playing the piano. And he, like, and farts or something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, that's <laughs> that's all I know. <laughs> okay. And Falco's Rock Me Amadeus, so I, no, I don't know if that has any Wait, relation. No, I, to disappoint you, that's not actually in the movie. No. Oh, that's so, a bummer. Yeah. That's, no, sorry that, about that's that. a damn classic right there. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Are we calling that a classic? I think we are. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting use of that word. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's talk about Milos Forman okay. a little bit, who just passed away last week. He's a, he's an interesting director to me. I think the way I think about it, there are some directors who are defined by style or the genre of movie they make, mm-hmm. and then there are these other directors that seem to make all kinds of different kinds of movies. They can work in any genre. They can do any kind of story, but they're sore. They're their films are tied together by theme. Like, you can sort of see their obsessions working their way out okay. through the films. Sure. Um, and the example I always use of that is Ang Lee, mm-hmm. who made Sense and Sensibility and Brokeback Mountain and Life of Pi and The Hulk. <laughs> like, that's a weird... On paper, that's a weird... Resume. Resume. Right. But when you think about it, you realize that all of those films are about, like, emotional repression. Mm. Emotionally repressed character, including the Hulk. Like yes. that, That's why when they announced he was doing the Hulk, it was like, that's weird. And then you thought about it for a minute, like, oh, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> and I think Milos Forman is one of those guys. Um, he was born in 1932 in Czechoslovakia, what was then called Czechoslovakia. Right. So he spent his youth in Nazi-occupied... Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. His parents were both arrested and died in concentration camps Mm -hmm. during the war. And then, of course, in 1946, the communists took over. So 
if, if you look at his films, I think they are very much the product of growing up in these two totalitarian, right. repressive regimes. And all of his films are, to some extent, about pushing back against repressive totalitarian forces or pushing mm -hmm. back against censorship mm -hmm. or sort of the rebels in society that are kind of breaking the rules. I'm, again, it, it's a weird collection of films, but they all kind of make sense thematically. So One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, obviously. Um, he did Hair, the film version of the musical Hair. He did Amadeus. He did... People versus Larry Flint, which mm -hmm. is all about censorship. Um, he did Man on the Moon, which was about Andy Kaufman. Right. So all of his films are sort of about this: the people who don't quite fit in, mm -hmm. the people who are sort of pushing back against the uh, rebellious misfits. Sort right. Of thing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think you know he was very conscious of that. He he said in interviews that people told him to stay away from Cuckoo's Nest. They said, you know, what are you doing? That's such an American story mm. that. A foreigner can't possibly tackle that book. And he said, what are you talking about? For you, it's a book. It's fiction. But I lived that story. For me, the Communist Party was Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> <laughs> and everything that is described in that book, I live. So to me, it's a Czech movie. It's a documentary. <laughs> so that's those are the stories he was attracted to. Right. And I think with varying success, I think... Amadeus and Cuckoo's Nest are generally considered his best films. Um, he made others that were not as successful. He did a version of Dangerous Liaisons oh, okay. called Valmont, which unfortunately came out about eight months after Dangerous Liaisons came that out. That is unfortunate. And paled in comparison. Um, his last film, which I have not seen, was a film about Goya called oh. Goya's Ghosts with Javier Bardem. Uh, yeah, I remember he I wanted to see it and I never did see that. Yeah, I haven't either. We should watch that one of these days. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the reviews of it were great. Okay. But anyway, he's, he's a really interesting director to me. And I love Cuckoo's Nest. How do you feel about Cuckoo's Nest? I really like Cuckoo's Nest. Um, but Cuckoo's Nest is my is on that list with um my girl which is like <laughs> <laughs> speaking of strange right. pairings of films there are there's like a list of films where at a certain point i have to turn it off <laughs> so i've seen my girl so many times but i have to turn it off before thomas J dies <laughs> see it's too soon it's too soon it's not funny it's too soon um, I can't deal with Thomas J. dying, <laughs> so I have to turn it off. <laughs> Cannot do it. Cuckoo's Nest, I have to turn it off before... Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Before, I'm, I'm like, I would be the only person that hadn't seen it, so... <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, before McMurphy is lobotomized. <laughs> I can't, there's something about the lobotomized, and, and then he's in the, the gurney, and Chief smothers him with the pillow. Yeah, it it tears me apart. I can't, and then I think about it for days after. I cannot handle it, so I have to. <laughs> technically, probably when Bobby kills himself is when I should turn it off. Because uh, that Billy, Billy, sorry, when he kills himself, I should turn it off. But I can get past. Yeah, things that. go bad pretty quickly right. after that. So you could probably. I, could, I should probably cut it off at that point. It, I think if you cut it off when so. Billy Babbitt goes into the room with the prostitute right. and McMurphy is drunk and looking at the window <laughs> and planning to leave. If you cut it off right then, right. it's a happy ending. Which comes so back I to our that's... never look at the window <laughs> <laughs> argument. Never look at a fucking window. But yeah, so definitely at the point of the lobotomy, I have to turn it off because it just, I, it, it sits in my brain and I can't get rid of it for days and I don't know why, but it's just, 
But Chief Broom still escapes at the he end. He does. After suffocating his friend. <laughs> and it's <laughs> I can't do it. But yes, I love Cuckoo's Nest. I think it's okay. a, a wonderful movie. All right. Well, getting back to the movie we're actually watching today. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's as traumatic as That's good. Cuckoo's Nest. I don't think you have to worry about that. But what are you actually expecting from this experience? Um, I'm expecting to hear a lot of Mozart. That's a safe bet. <laughs> Which is good. Because I feel like a classical music Luddite, so. I am too. I have like, there's, I have like six CDs. People still listen to CDs. Sure. Of classical music that are pieces that I happen to love. Mm -hmm. But I'm completely ignorant of other classical music and probably really deep down ignorant about how to listen to classical music. (laughs) I know all the ones that everybody knows. Right. So, you know, the Vivaldi Four Seasons Uh and all those things. Like I know those, but I, I am not fluent in it at all. So I will enjoy that experience. This is the second week in a row we're doing a movie that's heavily it's scored with classical music. With classical music. Yeah. We're going to have to do, I don't know, Tommy or we're something some, like, next week. Classy broads over here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not expecting to hate it. Does he fart? There may be some farting. Okay. So I'm involved. expecting some farting. <laughs> you haven't asked about the running time. Oh, God. Unusually. That makes me nervous that you bring it up, though, now. <laughs> okay. Then forget I said anything. No, no, anything. no. What's the runtime? Um, too damn long. You're taking too long to answer. That means it's a too long movie. <laughs> when it came out, it was two hours forty minutes. What? Um, we are going to be watching the director's cut. No, we agreed no director's cuts. That has an extra twenty minutes. I'm sorry. In it, are you telling me this is a three hour experiment? It's right around the three hour. Well, mark. not right around. It is. Yes, it's going to go like that. Though. It's not though. It is. It, isn't, it is. Because nothing does. <laughs> gonna fly by it really isn't i didn't agree to that (laughs) that's why i didn't bring it up until now usually you ask you didn't ask this time so it's kind of your own fault (laughs) really you're blaming the victim now yeah you know usually it happens at the point where i say i think we'll do amadeus next week the first question out of your (laughs) mouth is how fucking long is it why do you we forgot need to, to ask this week? Three hours so, on Mozart. I here mean, we are. Genius. We've gone too far to go back now. Amazing. Well, no, because I can just tap out, <laughs> and we just don't have an episode this week. <laughs> I think you're gonna love it. I don't think I am. Not for three hours. I'm not. There's very little I love for three hours, especially if Falco's Rock Me Amadeus plays no part in the film. <laughs> are we going to appall you with something confidential and disgusting? Let's hope so. Because that is what you really like. Unconfessed crimes of buried wickedness. If that is what brings you to us, the prospect of hearing horrors, you shall not go unrewarded. I don't believe it. The whole city is talking. You hear it all over. What a story. What a scandal. What a comedy. What a tragedy. Incredible. I don't believe it. Who can believe it? What horrors have you heard? Tell us. Tell us. Tell us at once. Tell us about Wolfgang. Amadeus. Mozart. Mozart. Mozart? <laughs> How good is he? This Mozart is remarkable. Is an unprincipled, spoiled, conceited brat. I'm a vulgar man. But I assure you, my music is not. He is divinely inspired. He is arrogant, vulgar, obscene. He creates music for the gods. He is passionate. He burns with fire. He is an angel. He is a devil. He claims.
claimed he'd been poisoned. Some said he accused a man. Some said the man was Salieri. Salieri? Salieri. I don't believe it. All the same. Could it be possible? Did Salieri do it after all? Did he murder Amadeus? Amadeus, the man, the music, the magic, the madness, the murder, the mystery, and now the director's cut. Amadeus, with 20 minutes of never-before-seen footage, digitally restored and remastered picture and sound. You've never seen it like this before. Okay, during the break, Nikki and I watched Amadeus. And it flew by. It did not. In its three-hour director's cut <laughs> version. Uh, okay, little uh, background off the top as usual. We already discussed it's directed by Milos Forman. It was written by Peter Schaffer, two-time Tony Award-winning playwright. Uh, he won the Tony for, well, Amadeus won the Tony, and Equus was his other most famous play. Uh, fun fact, his identical twin brother Anthony is also a playwright and screenwriter. He was the author of Sleuth, which is one of my favorite movies that you and I will watch one of these days. Okay. And more importantly, to our purposes, he was the screenwriter on The Wicker Man. Oh, God. You loved The Wicker Man. That's a demerit. No. (laughs) No. So that is a talented twin (laughs) act right here. Sure. Not as talented as those twin gynecologists that you made me watch. (laughs) Dead Ringers. Terrible film. (laughs) Horrifying film. Oh, we should have done that for the podcast. (laughs) Okay, Uh, Amadeus uh, won Oscars for F. Murray Abraham, who plays Salieri. It won for screenplay, art direction, costumes, makeup, sound, best director for Milos Forman, and best picture. So eight Oscars in all. It was also nominated, uh, Tom Hulse was nominated for playing Mozart, and it was nominated for cinematography and editing. It won a bunch of other awards. It won the Golden Globe, the L.A. Film Critics, Directors Guild Awards. It was very well received, this film. Mm Mm-hmm. What did you make of it? <laughs> I liked it. I thought it was long. Um, and part of that is because you broke the rules of the project. It's not a rule. It's a rule. It's not a rule. That we would watch the original release, and now we're watching... Well, the- first of all, I think when I went to order the DVD, it was hard to get the original release. It was This is the release that was available. So it's extra 20 minutes of yes. time. However, I feel really terrible about complaining about that because what that means is me saying that's a lot of fucking Mozart and that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> that's just... Too many notes. That's, that's what the exactly. emperor says. I basically sound like the emperor who's just like, just, it was it's, just too many notes. It's just too many it's notes. It's a fine piece of work. There are simply too many <laughs> notes. Too many notes. Take some out and it will be perfect. So that's who I am now, uh, is the emperor who can't play piano or hear music for shit. Um, so I don't want to be the person that's like, if we could just cut 20 minutes of the Mozart out. Well, that's the thing. I mean, so apparently the, the reason they cut the 20 minutes out originally was because they were worried the film would seem too long. And this was a film that nobody wanted to make. The studios didn't want to put money into it. Mm -hmm. Um, as Foreman says, this was like the age of MTV and nobody thought. Right. A film about classical music. It's a weird film to make. That anyone was going to be interested in it. 
So they were very nervous about this, and they were really nervous about having it be three hours long. Mm -hmm. They thought that would kill it. So they cut those scenes out, and we'll talk about the scenes that they cut out as we get to them. But I will say, I did not remember the the film feeling long. It just seemed movie length. That's how I remembered it. That 20 minutes makes a big difference. It Which you did wouldn't think it would. Like, 20 minutes doesn't sound like a long. lot, but it, it, it just felt long in places. It reminds me of one of the big studio system moguls. I don't know whether it was Jack Warner or which one of those guys it was, was famous for he would watch the cut of the film and he would say, it's good. You need to make it nine minutes shorter. Yeah. And they'd say, why nine minutes? And he'd say, because my ass started to hurt nine <laughs> minutes before the film ended. <laughs> And, you know, he just, like, had it down to a science like that. And I think it is. I mean, I think... But I wonder if appreciators of opera would feel differently about it. Um, because I I think what I started to feel was, oh, here's another scene of Mozart conducting an opera <laughs> and Salieri silently sort of reacting to it. Uh-huh. Um, so they, they could have cut one of the operas right, for you. But again, then you're saying, can you cut that Mozart opera out of <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's that's pretty. I'm okay with that. I don't. I mean, but no, because I think one of the beauties of a film like this is it's making you know something that tends to be sort of exists in a space that's inacceptable, inaccessible to a lot of folks, mm-hmm. more accessible. So that's good. More people are hearing pieces by Mozart and seeing them on stage, and they wouldn't have an opportunity to do that. So I think it it maybe has more to do with my uncultured lack of appreciation for opera. I don't think so. Um, Although to me, the the opera parts were not the parts that seemed long. I I enjoyed those parts. That was, and it's the great choreographer, mm -hmm. Twyla Tharp, was responsible for staging those operas. Those, to me, are the most interesting parts of the film. Mm-hmm. It was some of the subplots that they added to this version they had cut before, mm-hmm. and it added, to it. it added unnecessarily to it in a yeah. couple of places. I mean, but yeah, I think it's a good, I think it's a really interesting exploration of sort of the nature of genius, mediocrity, mm-hmm. and sort of man's relationship and struggle with, uh, well, a man's a particular man's struggle and relationship with God. Yeah, because it's not, it's not man versus man. No. It's it's Salieri versus, versus God. God. Right. And it's also interesting in that I don't think we often see a story told from the perspective of the antagonist, of the sort of quote-unquote villain. Mm-hmm. And particularly when we think about sort of typical artist biopics, it's told, you know, through the eyes of the artist. It's about the artist. And it's not, I mean, it is about Mozart, but it isn't about Mozart. Right. Um, right. The film could have been called Salieri. Right. So I thought it really explored some interesting things. And in a way, it, it I mean, that's, I don't know if you know this, but that's the word Amadeus mm-hmm. means beloved of God. I did not know that. So that's, I think that's why it's called, it's not called Mozart. Mozart right? It's called Amadeus mm-hmm. because that was Salieri's issue mm-hmm. with him. All right. Well, let's, let's just talk about Salieri, I think, because that's, he's really the star of this show. He is. And I think, and I think F. Murray, he did win the Oscar for this, and I think he was fantastic in this. He, I mean, he basically carried the film. Yeah. It, it, I mean, the film was going to live or die with him. And, and he, he was pretty much an unknown. He'd made a couple of films, and he was mostly a stage actor. Mm-hmm. Um, but Foreman wanted unknowns for this. Mm-hmm. And both he and Tom Hulse. Tom Hulse had been in, like, Animal House um, and a couple of other things, but he was not. Neither of them were faces that right. people were gonna you know say oh that's brad pitt playing mozart <laughs> you know. that would have been an interesting choice <laughs> <laughs> i think
think F. Mary Abraham did a... Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed his performance throughout the entire film. I think he had to do a lot of sort of subtle work. There were a lot of different layers going on. It was the face he was presenting to everyone outside. And then there was sort of the the inner narrative that we as an audience knew about that mm-hmm. he also had to sort of let flash across his face. The scenes of him as an older man in the sanitarium were just hilarious to me. I just mm-hmm. thought he was really funny. Um <laughs> <laughs> in a good way? In a good way. Okay. I love that opening scene with the priest. Yeah. But it's not the opening scene. The opening scene is his suicide attempt. Right. But then the first real scene is is him with the priest. Right. And, you know, he's like, do you know who I am? And he's playing the songs and the, the priest, priest has doesn't no recognize idea. any of them. And then he plays that one tune and the priest is like, yes, that one I know. <laughs> And he's so relieved that he actually knows one of those songs. And he's like, I didn't know you wrote that. I didn't. I didn't. (laughs) That was Mozart. Um, But yeah, I mean, that conversation, that sort of opening conversation with he and the priest, I think is is really interesting. Um, The priest says something like, you know, all men are equal in God's eyes. And he just sort of looks at him and he's like, are they? Are they? <laughs> that's that's the moment yeah. where he decides to talk to the priest because right. before he doesn't even want he right. doesn't he just tells the priest to go away. Let me then tell you about how God that. can fuck you over. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Let me tell you about your God. <laughs> so yeah, Salieri had a fucked up relationship with God long before he met Mozart. Actually, because he yes he basically prayed as a boy to be a great musician, mm-hmm. a great composer. Basically offered up his life to God. His life, in exchange including for, his chastity, which yes. we'll come back to later. In exchange for some genius. In, in, right. Which apparently killed his father. That was, <laughs> he prayed and his father died so he could go study music. So he considered that God accepting his offer. Right. And he became the most prominent... Court no, composer. the most prominent... <laughs> composer in vienna he was the court composer to an emperor who doesn't understand music at all <laughs> to emperor ferris bueller's principal <laughs> yes in those opening scenes we get the sort of juxtaposition of their two childhoods so you had salieri whose father was not at all encouraging right of his uh musical talents um or his desires to be a famous composer versus uh, Mozart, whose father was basically treating him like a show pony and right. taking him around to... Right, to, this is Leopold Mozart. Right, to play piano. Wherever anyone would hear. And so that sort of sets up this sort of two sides of the same coin sort of thing where it's a constant um, sort of juxtaposition between the two characters. So you have Salieri, who's, you know, a model of virtue and chastity and dedication and hard work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first time we meet Mozart after he's become Mozart, he's chasing a woman through a party and being lewd and lascivious and just crude and... That ridiculous laugh. Um, <laughs> that maniacal <laughs> <it> giggle. <laughs> just sends tingles up your spine. Um, and yet, when Salieri hears Mozart's music, he says it's hearing the voice of God. Right. And so this is sort of the first He's, time that... He, he, had, he had wondered if Mozart was just like a performing right, monkey. Right. That's what his Salieri's father had referred to Mozart as. Right. And then when he actually hears the music, he's like, this is not the work of a performing right. monkey. This is the voice of God. And that's sort of the first time when he, when Mozart just sort of becomes a stand-in for God, basically, for Salieri. And this was not 
complete. I mean, we'll we'll I, we'll probably talk more about how fictionalized versus right. factual this story was, but. That aspect of Mozart, if you read his letters, he made a lot of shit jokes. He loved <laughs> shit jokes. He had a very scatological mind. In fact, there's a whole Wikipedia page dedicated to Mozart and scatological humor. Wow. He actually wrote a piece of music, a canon for six voices, entitled Lick Me in the Ass. Wow. They changed the title when they published it. Well, but I that's, would, I that's would think what so. he, he titled it. <laughs> well, that's why, that's interesting because... One of the things that struck me in that that sort of first scene at uh, Mozart's sort of coming out performance, mm-hmm. um, when he's chasing Costanza, Costanza, who would later become his wife, right. through the party, and they're sitting there making these jokes, and he said, like, you know, kiss my ass and eat my shit. Yeah, and that, that's what his letters are full of. But it seems so um, anachronistic, given mm-hmm. you know the environment and the the timeline that we were supposed to sort of. Uh, the era within which the film was taking place yeah it's a weird it's tonally a weird film Mm -hmm. i mean i and i think part of it is our expectation that a movie like this is going to be boring and polite and very staid Mm -hmm. and that it, it does have this sort of and i don't know is it a modern sensibility or is it just a more realistic right like the past was not right all well, with the, what you tell, you know, what you're telling me about PBS, his letters and things like theater. that, it's like, oh, I guess that that actually right. makes sense and that fits. But right. yeah, it sort of struck me as like, oh, okay, that's a little bit tonally different from what I was expecting. Mm. And then I do think there's other stuff. Like I think the fact that like everybody has a different accent, yeah, there's, and yeah. you know, some of them are American accents, and mm-hmm. Foreman doesn't care about that. That's fine. <laughs> but it it does feel like kind of a I don't know if it's a prestige picture with low brow elements mm-hmm. or whether it's actually a lowbrow film dressed up like a prestige picture i right. don't know it's it walks that line right. in a really interesting way yeah when mozart goes to meet uh the emperor for the first time he's wearing this sort of like flamboyant purple velvet <laughs> outfit and you know sort of punkish wig and so that was uh, these instances were just like he just seemed sort of out of place yeah which, I mean, that was sort of the point, was that he was this sort of transgressive figure coming in and saying, oh, why don't we just do it in German? And coming in and saying, right. why don't we, you know, have an opera about a brothel or whatever, right. you know. Instead of about these lofty, right. people so lofty they sound like they shit murder right. exactly. is what he says. <laughs> so visually so it's kind of this theater of the common right. man thing. Stand out, I thought, was, was a really interesting choice. And then him sitting down at the piano and just rewriting Salieri's piece. Yeah, that's that might be the real beginning of the resentment <laughs> right there. Which is like, you haven't seen that sort of skill of a remix since <laughs> Craig Mack's Flavor in Your Ear. And it's brilliant. <laughs> and it's wonderful. Um, but yeah, I, that, that was definitely... I have no idea what you're talking about. I know, about. it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure other people do. But that's one of those scenes where you could sort of see Salieri trying to keep the mask up. Like, oh, yes, this is totally yeah. fine. This is absolutely fine. I'm okay right. with Everybody this. else is looking at him like, you're going to let him get away with this? Right. And he's like, no, no, it's fine. And Mozart's not trying to be mean. No, he's not. It's Nowhere just in this what he film does. is Mozart no. being cruel it's just who he to is. Salieri. He has a gift. First, when he meets him, he says like, oh, I did a variation on a tune of yours. Mm-hmm. Funny little tune, but it yielded some good stuff, he says. <laughs> And then, yes, he just, he's playing the, the march that Salieri wrote for him, and he just rewrites it on the fly right. and makes it a thousand times better. That doesn't really work, did it? Did you try this? 
Let's just do this over. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the beginning of Salieri's mm-hmm. real resentment for him. Mm-hmm. Or his, his real resentment of God. Right, right. Saying, you know... Why give me the desire, but deny me the talent? Right. Why did you choose for your vessel this creature? He keeps calling him a creature. This obscene creature. When I gave you my chastity and right. my industry, my humility. But here's the thing. I mean, let's so let's get into Salieri. Salieri is not really a pious kind of guy. I mean, he is a rule follower. For the, until he meets Mozart, and then he's, you know, mm-hmm. the slide into insanity is, is quick. Um, but, I mean, he's, you know, he's not a bad guy. He kind of is a bad guy. But doesn't he become bad? Does he start? I mean, I guess if it's that easy for you to do the things that he did, then that was in you all along. I mean, I, I well, first of all, I think the whole deal with God was pretty sketchy to start with. <laughs> Because it's not it's not really that he loves God and mm-hmm. he wants to pray. It's 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 like a deal with the devil, mm-hmm. basically, is what he's making. God as genie. Like, Make me famous. Mm-hmm. I want people to worship me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not really I want to praise you through music. I wanna, you know. Right. It's not even really I wanna create beautiful music, because as we find out at the end of the film, he's willing to just steal Mozart's right. music right. and pass it off as his own as long as he gets the credit. The credit for it. Right. So his his motives are not as pure as he has convinced himself that they are. Yeah. Which means he's not really worthy. He's not pure of heart. You know, in a, in a way, Mozart may actually be purer of heart than Salieri is. I don't know. I mean, that's interesting. I don't, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think he does say something along the lines of, you know, I wanted to, my music would be praised to you. And whether or not that was coming from an actual genuine place i don't know but i mean i think in general there's there's a problem when you start looking at if you're approaching your relationship with god as transactional Mm, right you're inevitably going to be disappointed (laughs) (laughs) so but that's also sort of some of the messaging that just comes through in a lot of organized (laughs) religions (laughs) so whether or not that you know makes him a bad person or it just makes him someone who someone who believes you know, what a lot of us were taught in church, which is, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will be rewarded, you know, here or in the hereafter. I don't buy it. I don't, I don't <laughs> buy his bullshit. And so, I mean, we see him become progressively more evil. Yes. As the film goes on. And there are these little, there are these moments mm-hmm. that seem to kick him up to the next level each time. Mm-hmm. So that first scene with, with Mozart, you know, rewriting his music is one of them. Right. I think the next one is when he figures out that Mozart has slept with Madame Cavalieri, yes. the soprano. The one he was in love with. Or at least lust. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's true. Right. Yes, he did So he lust. has been yes. lusting after this woman. In his chastity. In, right. And Mozart, who had no such vows, <laughs> apparently slept with her. And that's where, that's the moment at which he says, for the first time in my life, I begin to have truly violent thoughts. <laughs> and then he prayed on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take it to the Lord in prayer. <laughs> and then I think, if, I think the next leap, and it's really the final leap, and, it, and this is the section of the film that was added back in mm-hmm. in the director's cut. There were there were two major subplots that were added back in. One was 
this thing where Mozart is like tutoring this guy and the guy has a bunch of dogs that are barking while he's trying right. to play like that was so completely gone, useless. Yeah. Like Milos, you were right to cut that the first yeah. time. You did not need to put that back into this film. Mm-hmm. But the significant one is Salieri's attempted seduction of Costanza. Right. Um, or his sexual harassment. The scene was in the original version where Costanza goes to him. Uh, Mozart's up for a position tutoring the emperor's niece. Right. And Costanza goes to Salieri to try to get him to help Mozart get this position because they need the money. And she shows him Mozart's music and he's just amazed at how clean it is mm. that, you know, this was first and only no drafts and they're perfect. Right. And, then, you know, again, just that idea that he's just channeling the voice of God onto paper. Um, and then that's where that scene ends mm-hmm. in the original version. Mm-hmm. And he just he drops the pages and he walks out. In the director's cut, he that that all plays out, and then he says to Costanza, "Well, if you want me to help, come back later right. by yourself." Right. And he's basically saying, "If you sleep with me, I'll help Mozart." Right. That's that's a very different interpretation right. of Salieri. It definitely changes the character. Right. Right. It makes him. At that point, there's no. It's harder to feel any sort of empathy for him. He just becomes full on villain. Right. But then Costanza accepts his offer, and she turns up at his place that night and takes off her clothes. Right. And he calls in his assistant or whatever. His servant. His servant. Right. To embarrass her. Right. Basically, once she's naked, he calls the rings a bell, calls the servant, and says, show this woman out. Mm -hmm. And just completely humiliates her and rejects her and throws her out. It's it's a terrifically cruel moment. But it's also it's also an interesting moment as far as like what does that actually mean in his twisted theological <laughs> magical thinking. Well, he didn't have sex with her, right? <laughs> but still chased. There's a scene between when he makes her the offer and when she comes back, where we see him again praying. Right, and he appears to be praying almost. He's, like, trying to reestablish his weird connection with God. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost like doesn't want Costanza to show up. That's how I read it, yeah. Because then God is still demanding his chastity. Right. And the deal is still... Right. He's testing him. He's solid. being tested. Right. Right. He's being tested. And then what happens is she shows up and basically throws herself at him. Right. And he, I think he interprets that as God is saying, I don't give a shit. Right. You know, fuck her. Like, your chastity is not important to me because your talent is not important to me. Right. And that's the moment, in this version at least, where he becomes truly evil. Mm -hmm. And I think it might be the next scene where he, like, burns his crucifix. He burns the crucifix, right. And and says, I pledge myself to destroying (laughs) your creation. You are unjust, unfair, and unkind. (laughs) All right, well, uh, let's talk about Costanza while we're here. Okay. What, What did you think of Costanza? Um... She turned out to be a a shrewder character than I thought she was going to be. Mm-hmm. She's sort of, again, that sort of opening scene with Mozart chasing her through the party and they're making their little lewd jokes and it's the camera's just sort of, it's all about her boobs. Um, <laughs> but then she's actually the one who is the business mind in that relationship with Mozart. Right, she's the practical right. one. Right, she's, she's like, you need to be getting paid for your work, yeah. you need to be getting paid up front, you need to be, you know, you need to be tutoring people because that's yeah. the only way that you make money, and so, she, I mean, she walks that line between sort of nagging wife and just, like, mm-hmm. shrewd 
businesswoman yeah. sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, she was an interesting character. I think I think for the most part, the critics were pretty hard on her performance, Elizabeth Barrage's mm-hmm. performance. And it's interesting. There's a couple interesting things about that. One of them is she was, that was a recasting. Uh, Meg Tilly was originally mm-hmm. cast as Costanza. Meg Tilly broke her ankle playing soccer with kids in the streets in Prague where they were filming. And the production couldn't afford to wait for her, basically, mm-hmm. to come back. So there was a whole recasting process. There were two actresses, Elizabeth Barrage and another actress, that they couldn't decide between. Mm-hmm. Um, and they flew them both to Prague, and like they were both in Prague for like weeks. And this tells you something about Milos. According to Elizabeth Barrage, what he said to them, he sat them down and he said, well, I re- you're both great. I want to cast you both. I can't decide between you. The only thing I have to decide between you is that one of you is too attractive to be Costanza. And so he hired Elizabeth Barrage. Oh, God. Right? <laughs> so she went into this being like, you're the less attractive one. <laughs> That's a little shitty. You're more believable as a landlady's daughter. Yeah. So you've got the part. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> so that's fucked up. Um, but it's it's a really interesting performance because I do think there are moments when she seems kind of awful. Yes. But I also think that those are the moments where that character is trying... It's like when she's talking to Salieri, when she's trying to be a certain mm-hmm. type of person that she's not necessarily by mm-hmm. nature. So it's like she's acting unnaturally. Right. She's, you know, putting on airs and right. she's trying to be sophisticated. And she's not convincing, but I think she's not supposed to be convincing. Right. So I don't know. I think it kind of works in a weird way. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm more, I mean, for me, she could have easily and maybe sometimes did sort of cross the line into just a little whiny like i found mm-hmm. and I, and part of that was just she kept calling him wolfie and that just bugged me to no end um, <laughs> just like, so but yeah that was probably just my own thing um but yeah i thought i mean i thought she was a big i thought she did well with the role oh i also the other thing i was going to say about that is i think one of the reasons too that her performance did not read as well in the theatrical version is because they had cut out that whole scene where Salieri sexually, sexually harasses right. her. So then she seems like a completely different person in the second half of the film, and she like suddenly hates Salieri for no reason and is like snapping at and him. And without and stuff. that scene, you don't understand. Without that why. scene in right. the original version, you didn't really understand why she was behaving that way. Mm-hmm. She just seemed like a bitch. Mm-hmm. So that I do think the director's cut restored some necessary characterization to her. That's interesting, yeah. Alright, well, while we're talking about performances, let's talk about Tom Hulse as, as Wolfie. Which, again, it, it really is, it's kind of a jarring performance. It it's is. Like, he's very, he seems very American. Yes. He, I mean, this is, again, this is, uh, this is Pinto from Animal House <laughs> as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. I mean, yeah, I think, and again, I like I said earlier, I think it's either going to work or it's not going to work but he, because his accent and his speech, uh, even the way that he presents himself in his clothing and his wig is so sort of incongruous with everyone else. You can say that it makes sense because Mozart was, you know, a man of his own and a singular mm-hmm. genius and he, in, he didn't fit into what was considered the sort of norm of opera you know the the sort of staid formal italian opera aesthetic or it's going to be something that sticks out like a sore thumb to you because it just seems right garish and odd and again there were critics who 
really objected to yeah. Tom Hulse's performance yeah. in this and just thought he was... I mean, the choice of the laugh alone... <laughs> fucking laugh. <laughs> but then I sort of liked the laugh because I, Salieri says something along the lines of, you know, it, it was God laughing at me through that obscene giggle. So the idea of, like, him hearing God laugh... Yeah. And it's like, ah! like I can't even <laughs> imitate it. It's such a ridiculous noise. I mean, I think it worked. I think it made sense given the character. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's talk about the uh, heading towards the, the ending of the film when Salieri's evil plan begins to manifest itself. As he triumphs over God. As he attempts to triumph over God. Mm-hmm. So he, it's, it's while he's watching Don Giovanni that he gets the idea. It's after Mozart's father has died. Right. And then he sees that Mozart has put a version of his father in D- Don Giovanni as this demonic mm-hmm. figure. And he gets the idea to dress up as, as uh, Leopold and commission a requiem mass <laughs> from Mozart, which slowly appears to drive Mozart <laughs> crazy. Yes, he is unknowingly writing his own death march, and it seems to be killing him. Yes. yes that or syphilis. Or syphilis. It's, it's... Or cirrhosis of the liver. <laughs> well, that's, there's a moment towards the end where Costanza says to him, be honest with me, you've been drinking, haven't you? And I'm like, bitch, he's been drinking there wine the entire film. That's all he does is drink and giggle and write music. All at the same time. Yes. You can't have one without the other. No. This idea that he's been sneaking off and drinking, like, where have you been? So, yes. And we get that, to me, it, one of the best scenes in any movie is the scene where they are composing. Yes. He has collapsed at the premiere of The Magic Flute. Salieri has brought him home. He needs to finish the Requiem Mass. And Salieri is helping him compose. Right. He's basically dictating to Salieri, and Salieri is writing down right. uh, what he's, what he's uh, saying. And, and if the movie was not about... I mean, the movie has been about music all the way right. through, but that is as good a represent. And I'm not a musician. I don't know anything about music. But as a lay person watching that, it's like I almost understood music yeah. for a second yeah. there as they're going through that and Mozart's layering the different sounds together. Mm-hmm. And Salieri doesn't. Under- he's like, I don't understand. Right. I don't understand. You go too fast. I don't understand because Mozart's mind is working on this like whole other level right. from where his is. And then it all clicks together, and right. we hear it all come together. It's an amazing scene. It is, and I like it because there are also moments in there where Salieri is with him and he can guess the next note. Yeah. He's like, okay, I know exactly where you're going. And then he loses it. And it's yeah. just like, in that split second, he was in there. He's like, okay, I, I see where the genius yeah. is. I see where you're going. And then he loses it just as quickly. And he's like, okay, now you're going too fast. And I, I, I don't understand. And I don't, you know, see where you're going. So that idea of like the sort of fleeting nature of genius and that you can, you, it's, you either have it or you don't. Right. It's all, it's, you also just see the different talents of the right. two men, where it's like, yeah, Salieri's like, okay, I get it, I get it, I right. see where we are, okay, this is great, and then he's like, and that's it, right? Right. And Mozart says, no, right. now the real fire comes. Right. And so just, Salieri could have written the okay version mm-hmm. of what Mozart is writing, mm-hmm. and then Mozart has this whole other level that he brings right. to it, and puts these things together that would never even occur right. to Salieri to put together. Well, there's a moment when they are talking um, earlier in the film, when, uh, you know, Mozart, through both machinations of Salieri and other factors, 
his his operas are failing. Like nobody's going to see his operas. Right. And he's like, I don't understand why nobody's going to see it. And he's and and Salieri's like, well, you're you know, you're you're not following the rules. Like you right. have to tell them when they have to clap. You have to tell them when there's a big moment. <laughs> right. like, it has to be very sort of. Yeah. You basically have to sort of um handhold your audience <laughs> through, and it's like you know that's not you know the speech of a genius. Right. That's the speech of someone who's very good at craft. And again, Mozart gets a little dig in on right. it, saying, oh, maybe I can take some lessons in that <laughs> from you. <laughs> So when he's, you know, when they're in that sort of little duet moment at the end, Salieri knows craft. And so he says, okay, I see where you got here. I don't see how you get to this next part because right. that is, oh, it's outside of sort of the rules of what I understand mm-hmm. is supposed to be done. So I think it's a perfect sort of representation of how inspired genius and craft can go hand in hand. Like craft is fine and you can get by on craft but it's you know it needs the genius you need the inspiration otherwise you have you know mediocrity which is what salieri finally <laughs> says is, he is at the end of the he film says he, he is. is the patron saint of, of mediocrities <laughs> wonderful final scene with him going through the asylum and saying you know, i absolve you to right. all the other mediocrities around him it's a little bit like fountainhead actually Ugh, i don't remember fountainhead well enough wasn't that the whole thing about like was it Keating? I think uh, was his his rival was uh, Rourke, and Rourke was like the sort of renegade architect. Right. Rourke so was the genius, right. yes, who was too good for everything. And so he tried to tear him down. Apparently, this is an objectivist film. <laughs> That's depressing. <laughs> There's this interesting article by Ijioma Aluo. Um, and I think it was medium.com and it was sort of the anger of the white male lie is the title. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was sort of talking about what white men consider to be sort of justifiable anger at not getting the lives that they thought that they were owed mm. and how they use that anger to sort of justify violence enacting violence in the world, usually on the bodies of black and brown folks and women. And that was, obviously, this is a movie and a fictionalized account of uh, Salieri and Mozart. So we're, you know, I'm not saying that these are the same situations. Um, But this idea that, you know, Salieri felt that he was owed. Right. um, And that it was his greatness was ordained by God. Right. And he didn't get it. And so it was his anger and his actions were almost justified because he had been lied to. And he had not gotten what he had he not been gotten promised. what he had been promised. And so this idea that and that's a very American thing, Which, too. Right. American. You right. Know, you talked about this when we talked about. Rocky. Right. It is ordained by God that you yeah. will be great, mm-hmm. that you can achieve anything you want to achieve in, right. in America. No, no one in America thinks they are a mediocrity. Right. No, no, no. Or that they were supposed to be a mediocrity. Right. right. And that it is. I, I do think that's relevant to this. And it's again. Coming back to Milos, who was not diplomatic, <laughs> he said one of the reasons he hired F. Murray Abraham mm-hmm. was F. Murray Abraham would be Salieri. Mm. He said he's the kind of guy who thinks he was supposed to be a great actor and he just didn't get the breaks. Mm. Which is funny because F. Murray Abraham won an Oscar for right. this role. <laughs> so he sort of proved that part of it anyway. But he, yeah, that's that's what Milos saw when he saw F. Murray Abraham was right. one of those guys like Salieri who thought, I'm supposed to be a great actor. Right. 
I'm supposed to be world-renowned, and just it hadn't happened for him. Right. And I think we all sort of hit that moment where you, we all have, a, if not many, we have at least one salary moment where there's somebody and you see, oh, shit, that was supposed to be my life. <laughs> my whole life is a salary. <laughs> like, salary is my patron saint. <laughs> and it's the difference of, like, when does that then turn into, you know, violent anger mm-hmm. um, versus your realization that, well, nobody promised you shit. And either, you know, and even if you right. did the work, it doesn't always mean it's going to end right. in greatness. And I think some of us have always known that that was a lie. And while others have felt that, you know, have had a hard time sort of reckoning with that. Right. So does Salieri get what he deserved? Living with his guilt in a sanitarium for the rest of his days? Basically. I mean, I suppose. I mean, there, there's a funny way in which the play and the film gave Salieri what Salieri in the play and the film wanted. I mean, Salieri was kind of forgotten mm-hmm. until Peter Schaffer's play opened and until the movie came out. And there has been a reinterest in the works of Salieri, hmm. um, academic interest and, you know, right. kind of a rediscovering of Salieri right. as a composer 200 years later mm-hmm. because of this story about how he turned into someone whose music faded into obscurity. Right. So this is, this is a weird kind of... He still ain't no Mozart, though. He's still not Mozart, <laughs> no. <laughs> and the, the film... Is not fair, apparently, to the real Salieri. Mm-hmm. He was probably a slightly better composer than the film <laughs> makes him out to be. He was probably a much better person than the film makes him out to be. It's not completely invented either, though. There was a rivalry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mozart did complain about Salieri and the other Italians at court plotting against him and, mm-hmm. you know, hindering his career and all those petty jealousies and rivalries were there. Um, And even the whole, the end of the film, though it certainly did not happen the way the film shows, there were rumors that Salieri had poisoned Mozart. Oh. That Salieri had killed Mozart. Supposedly, Mozart even thought when he was dying that he might have been poisoned. So those, and none of that was probably true, but those rumors were circulating in the gossipy court of Vienna at the time. Mm -hmm. And apparently, again, this is all reports take it with a grain of salt salieri in his dementia in the sanatorium came to believe it himself Mm. so supposedly he actually confessed Mm -hmm. in the sanatorium that he had murdered mozart even though he almost certainly did not right right but that that legend had already taken hold while he was still alive right in 1825 just six years after salieri's death alexander pushkin wrote a short play that contained many of the gossipy elements mm-hmm. of Amadeus in which Salieri had sort of plotted to murder right. Mozart and stuff. So that's this was not wholly invented for this film, even though it's probably, again, not what actually happened. Right. I mean, it's interesting, like, when Mozart is Mozart and his legend stands on its own, whereas Salieri is almost a footnote in his own story. Like yeah. He's, like, you're just not even the hero of your own story. Like, you are always going to be tied to Mozart. But maybe that's who he was always supposed to be. I mean, I mean, Salieri was apparently a very well-respected teacher. Mm-hmm. His students, his students of composition included Beethoven, Schubert, and Liszt. This is a pretty impressive resume right. as a teacher. 
And that's the thing. It's like, maybe that's who Salieri was always supposed to be, was someone who served that role that he plays at the end for Mozart. Right. Like, he's assisting the genius. Right. He's there, you know. To facilitate. Bearing witness and mm-hmm. helping the genius. He wasn't supposed to be the genius, but he couldn't accept that about himself. Right. He needed to be the genius. Right. Um, and it comes back to what you were talking about, where it's like, none of us want to accept that we are the sidekicks. Right. That we are not the genius, that we are not the star of the story, that we are the also-rans. <laughs> All right. Well, did this make you want to explore the work of Mozart and operas? It did not. Should we go see some operas? No. No. <laughs> Um, Apparently there was a huge run on Mozart works after this film came out. I'm not surprised. Yes. I'm just not. Like, it's going back to the the film struck thing of, like, I could list four really highfalutin movies and say, oh, this is who I... No, I can't do opera. I really can't. You're Michael Jackson and Prince. You're not Mozart. (laughs) Which I... I mean, they were geniuses. Um, Yeah, I just can't do opera. And I, it may be the language thing, mm-hmm. um, because I know a lot of operas in Italian or, you know, and I, so I don't understand how people connect to something that they don't understand. Right. And I'm sure there's some sort of people either know the story or they are provided mm-hmm. some sort of cliff notes or something. I don't know. Um, but it's hard for me to connect to something that I just can't. I, I have the same problem. And I mean, these operas, some of them they put into English. Right. They were singing in English, and I still couldn't understand a fucking word they were saying. And so I just don't have that ear, for one thing. I just can't. Maybe this is part of the... Like, this is how you are with musicals. I'm just like, just (laughs) stop singing. Just talk to each other. Why are you singing? I'm just... Yeah, I took piano lessons briefly (laughs) as a child. uh, Because I think the reasoning was somebody said... Again, this was in church. Somebody was like, oh, you have long fingers. You should play piano. Of course, yes. Mm-hmm. And I liked the choir. So I was like, okay. So I took piano lessons from our then choir director, and it was just the slowest, most... <laughs> I just couldn't... I did not have the patience for it at all. And again, it was, if I can't sit down at this piano and immediately be Beethoven... Yeah. If you're not Mozart... Right. That... If I'm not immediately Mozart, then why the fuck am I doing Compos- it? <laughs> composing a symphony at five. You're not interested. It's just like, this ain't my scene then. Like, it's just not... I don't want to be a basic piano player. I want to be virtuoso. If I'm not immediately that, then I'm quitting. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably a terrible way to walk through life. But yeah. yeah, it could also just be I have, you know, an inferiority complex around stuff like that. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm not good at it, so I hate it. <laughs> All right. Do you have a favorite part of this film? I did enjoy that last scene between Salieri and Mozart, where Mozart is dictating the mm-hmm. requiem to him. I thought that was a really sort of rich sort of pas de deux. And then. Just visually, there was a scene where Mozart's father comes to visit him, mm-hmm. and his father's standing at the top of the stairs, and he has this long black cloak on and this yeah. black hat, and he's standing in front of a window, and the light through the windows yeah. are shining behind him, and it was a really just striking visual image. Um, so I, re- I liked that just as an image. The movie itself is it's really very like, sumptuous and, and beautiful. Yeah, it to look is. At. It's gorgeous. Um, this was filmed in Prague, mm-hmm. not Vienna, mm-hmm. um, because. According to Milos, due to the inefficiency of the com- of the Communist Party, <laughs> Prague had basically not advanced since the 1800s. So everything was <laughs> still in place. Still in place. Mm-hmm. You could shoot convincingly for the, the 18th century, and obviously that was very emotional because Milos had not been back to the Czech Republic yeah. since he left in 68. 
But yeah, no, the film looks gorgeous. And there are a lot of nice little just visual flourishes. Mm -hmm. I like the scene where they're at the masquerade ball. Mm -hmm. And and this is where Leopold is in the... The two-faced... The black, the two-faced thing. So he has... Mozart looks to him for approval and... He sees the happy face. First he sees the sad face and he goes, oh. And then his father turns and it's the happy face. And Mozart's like, yay! And then he takes off the mask. he takes off the mask. No. And his own face is, like, grim. (laughs) We are not happy. (laughs) It's just, like, little stuff like that. (laughs) All right, did you have a least favorite part? Or something you thought did not work at all? Or was it just too long? I thought it was too long. I mean, I I do think that the the scene with Mozart, who was supposed to be tutoring this man's daughter, and it turns out he's just there to play for the dogs. Yeah. That could have definitely gone... Um, but yeah, I just felt a little long to me. But again, I just feel terrible saying that because it's there's too much Mozart in this for you. So it's just... Too many notes. Right. So put an asterisk next to that complaint. <laughs> Chalk that up to my own. I, I find that most of the things I quote from this movie come from Jeffrey Jones's Emperor. Character. He was great. He was great. Because <laughs> I use too many notes. That's something I have use for in my life. And then his other phrase, when he doesn't know what to say and he just wants the conversation to be over, he just says, well... There it is. Yep. <laughs> he turns around and walks off. <laughs> All right. Any final thoughts? No. Well, there it is. <laughs>Okay, that's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll tune in next week. Akia, there are a couple of different kinds of movies we do for the Enthusiastic Critic. Mm-hmm. There are, of course, the, you know, critically acclaimed movies, which I feel like we have, you know, we've been good on. I think we have been neglecting the other kind of movie we do, which is just the weird movie that I happened to love when I was 15 years old and quote from all the time. I usually hate those. That's a very close-minded attitude. It's a very true attitude. So next week we are going to visit one of the cult classics of my youth, 1985's Better Off Dead, starring John Cusack. I actually don't know shit about that shit. Good. It'll all be new to you. It's gonna be bad. <laughs> I don't know why you assume that. Because I feel like I've seen all the good Cusack. There's so much Cusack. No, right, but I feel like I've seen the good Cusack and anything after that is gonna be... Cusack is like the actor of my generation. returns. <laughs> Well, his entire career has turned out to be diminishing returns, but we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> in the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at freerangecritic, send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com, or leave a comment for us on iTunes. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a movie that Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch. I'd be better off dead. You're probably going to make that joke a lot, aren't you? Probably. Yeah. (laughs) Now I don't want to do this even more. (laughs) I feel like you need to get me something. (laughs) You you want some kind of bribe? Yes. To sit down and watch I'm going to be sitting down for three hours. I want something. Need snacks or something? Something. All right. We can talk about that. All right. Well... I'm going to go buy you something nice, and then we're going to watch Amadeus. Don't put any of this in. (laughs) (laughs) Scrap this whole thing.